Stanford University. I'm not going to tell you much about uh, tonight's speaker uh, because I think, first of all, many of you uh, are familiar with her work. Uh, this is a short version of her uh, syllabus. We will be here for the rest of the evening if I even give you a short account of uh, what uh, uh, she has done. She has published uh, numer numerous books and articles, book chapters. Uh, her books include Marriage on Trial, A Comparative Study of Islamic Family Law in Iran and Morocco, Islamic Family Law, Ideals and Reality, Islam and Gender, the Religious Debate in Contemporary Iran. She's also uh, one of the directors of what I think, in my humble opinion, is one of the best documentaries made about post-revolutionary Iran. It is called The Worst Iranian Style. If you haven't seen it, I strongly urge you uh, to read it. Uh, Professor Zirbamir Hosseini is now and a scholar, a journalist, an activist, and occasional teacher. Uh, she is also with uh, Ms. Zainat Ambar, the co-founder of something called Musalbat. It's an effort to uh, establish uh, religious, legal, and social freedoms for uh, women in the Islamic world. Uh, Ms. Zainai is, kindly has joined us. She's sitting in the back, so we are very grateful that she has come and joined us tonight. She's doing something else. She's not paying attention to what I'm saying. So don't mention it and let her be happy doing what she's doing. Thank you very much. Thank you. It is an honor and a pleasure to be here. And thank you for coming and listening to me. My theme is love, honor, and human rights. And to set the scene, let me begin with a short poem followed by a statement. The title of the poem is In This Dead End. I read the English translation of it. They smell your mouth to find out if you have told someone I love you. They smell your heart such a strange time it is, my dear. And they punish love at thoroughfares by flogging. We must hide our love in dark closets. In this crooked dead end of a bitter cold, they keep their fire alive by burning our songs and poems. Do not place your life in peril by your thoughts. Such a strange time it is my dear. You will doubtless have recognized the poem. It is by Ahmad Shamlu, written in July 1979, when the Islamic Republic was still in formation barely six months after the victory of the popular revolution that ended Pahlavi monarchy. Shamlu's poem spoke to me, as it did to many Iranians of my background, and generation. It also proved to be prophetic, as it captured what was to come with the merger of religion and politics in the aftermath of the 1979 revolution. 
central to the so-called Islamization policies of the revolutionary regime were banishing love and women from public space through measures such as the imposition of hijab, the introduction of gender segregation, the censorship of films, and the revival of severe punishments for what was termed sexual offenses. In 1995, in the course of research on religious discourses in Iran, I came across a statement by the controversial religious intellectual Abdul Karim Surush. It is from a lecture that he gave to the annual meeting of the main students' organization, Daftar Tahkim Baghdad. And the theme of the lecture was the recent emergence of the right-based as opposed to duty-based approaches to Islam's sacred texts. As usual, in the break following his lecture, audience members handed in questions that Surush responded to after the break. In response to a question about why human rights were only weakly grounded in Islamic discourses, Surush said something to the effect that we can speak of human rights in Islam only when we treat violation of rights, haq, as we are used to treating violation of namus, sexual honor. And I will talk about namus, and most of you know what namus is. Surush's association of haq and namus, that is rights and honor, is intriguing, and of course gendered. But it was not until the emergence of the Green Movement in the aftermath of the disputed 2009 presidential election that I came to realize how apt this association was and how it was linked to the Shamdu's poem and the regime's banishment of love. And it is this association that I want to explore here. Its dynamics have animated Iranian politics since the start of the 20th century, when the quest for democracy began. My argument in brief, so I will give you the gist of my argument. It has three elements. The first one is that the century-old struggle for democracy in Iran has been embedded in the dynamics of changing links between sexuality, theology, and politics. The second element, Iran Iranian politics is conventionally viewed as polarized, as a polarized struggle between secular and Islamic ideologies. I argue that the real battle has been somewhere else. It has been between despotism and patriarchy on the one hand, and democracy and feminism on the other. Thirdly, a growing popular understanding of the nature of this real battle has been one of the many unintended consequences of the merger of religious and political power in post-revolutionary Iran. This, I shall contend, happened as love was rescued from Shamlu's dead end. And the notion of haq, the notion of rights, especially the right to vote and to have one's vote content became as important for many Iranians as their namus. By 
By 2009, the violation of this right in the presidential election created such fury, such a gut reaction, that huge crowds came out on the streets of the cities, with women at the forefront of the demonstrations, in open defiance of regime's rule of public gender segregation. Popular anger was at first focused on a single slogan, where is my vote? But as the protests developed and then were brutally suppressed, a shift occurred in which the links between love, rights, and sexual honor have been increasingly played upon both in the regime's repressive action and in the Green Movement's responses. Let me remind ourselves briefly of the political developments that led to the emergence of the Green Movement. During the 20th century, Iran experienced two popular revolutions. In both, the main demands were independence, democracy, and the rule of law. But both led to the modernizing dictatorships. The first secular, the second religious. The constitutional revolution which unfolded between 1901-1911 put an end to absolute monarchy and established a parliament and an independent judiciary. But democratic change was frustrated by the rise of, in the 1920s of the secularizing and modernizing but despotic Pahlavi regime. The second revolution which brewed in the 1970s so the replacement of the Pahlavis were by what became a new despotism, but this one is religious, this time a religious one. In the new Islamic Republic, the new Islamic Republic merged religious and political powers and endeavored to Islamicize law and society with aim of undoing 50 years of Pahlavi secularization. Yet today, Iranian society is arguably much more secular and modern than it was before the revolution. And Islamic ideology has lost much of its political luster and popular support. More than half of the 75 million population live in cities. Around 80% of the population at large is literate. There are 22 million students. Over 3 million of uh, them are enrolled in universities. And something around 65% of, uh, of university students are female. And there is a popular civil rights movement that advocates an egalitarian and democratic interpretation of Islam and is seeking a definite separation of the religious institution from the state, if not religion from politics. There is a vibrant and daring women's movement that is striving for equal rights in law and society. So why and how this theocracy produce its own antithesis? There is a host of factors at work that I cannot elaborate here, and I refer you uh, refer those who are interested to our book, Islam and Democracy in Iran. The gist of our argument there is as follows. 
What is usually held to define a state as Islamic is adherence to and implementation of the Sharia, held up as the perfect law embodying the justice of Islam. But the very quest for an Islamic state in modern times is a paradoxical project in the sense that once the Sharia becomes the ideology of the state and is enforced through the modern apparatus uh, of the state, then a process is set into the motion that desanctifies and secularizes the notion of law in Islam. The transformation of the Sharia from an ideal into an ideology not only makes it a site of political contestation, but also opens its mandates to scrutiny and public debate. In the end, the very slogan of the return to Sharia from which Islamists draw legitimacy when in opposition becomes their Achilles heel when they are in power. From in its inception, the Islamic Republic had to confront two of the late 20th century demands that is the demand for democracy and the demand for gender equality. These two demands and challenges encapsulates the essence of the tension inherent in any modern state and became a powerful catalyst by transforming the Islamic Republic from within. By 2009, this transformation was beginning to undo the uneasy marriage between theocracy and democracy. Let me elaborate a bit. The idea of an Islamic Republic in Iran was premised on two broad assumptions. First, what makes a state Islamic is the adherence and impl implementation of the Sharia. Secondly, given the free choice in elections uh, to, in elections to political offices, the Iranian people, because they are Muslim, they would choose Islam, and they would, they would vote for cler clerics because they are the interpreters of the Sharia, they are the custodians of Islam. And in fact, these two assumptions are embedded in Iranian constitution. You know, we have uh, elements of the uh, system which rec clearly recognizes people's will and the, uh, those who govern uh, and the right to govern them. And we have like the institutions of the parliament and uh, presidency. But the constitution at the same time subordinates its elected institutions to the clerical uh, oversight and veto, which is exercised through the concept of the institution of the ruling jurist, Wali Faqi, as the supreme leader, which gave Ayatollah Khomeini the mandate to rule, and the guardian consul, Shorai Negahban, of Islamic jurists, uh, that is charged with ensuring that the parliamentary legislation does not contradict the constitution and the Sharia. This chart I have taken from BBC website, and it is a chart really shows the relationship between the elected and uh, appointed institution. In practice, as the revolutionary fervor subsided, cracks in the system started to appear. Either the notion of Islamic 
which was now identified with the theocratic institutions, must adapt to the political exigencies of a modern democracy, or the people's choice must be restricted or bypassed, which meant betraying the revolution's ideals and losing the popular support from which the new regime drew legitimacy. The story of Islamic Republic has been the story of how the rulers have managed this basic problem of legitimacy. And their success or failure has been measured in regular elections. Simply put, it is the story of the unfolding of the structural tension between the elected and unelected institutions. Since its, uh, its birth in 1979, the Islamic Republic has held an election almost every other year. Elections have played a central role in the dialogue between the theocratic and republican forces, as well as in the dialogue between the regime and civil society. By the early 1990s, this dialogue has fostered the emergence of reformist forces seeking to democratize and liberalize the regime from within. Electoral com campaigns were those rare moments when the regime's tolerance level rose and contentious issues could be raised without uh, fear of um, repression. The outcome of two elections took Iranians and outsiders by surprise. The first was the May 1997 presidential election that brought the reformist and moderate cleric Mohammad Khatami into office, but not into power. The second surprise was Mahmoud Ahmadinejad's election as president in June 2005. And that happened after the reformists' inability to deliver on their election promises, which led to voter apathy and a boycott by the main actors in the civil society. Among the latter were sections of reformists, women rights activists, and students group who were arguing for a referendum to change the constitution. Few of them anticipated the result of the first round of the presidential election. There were seven candidates. Only two represented the reformist camp. No clear winner emerged, and this was the first and only election to go to a second round. The two candidates who survived to compete in the second round were Ali Akbar Hoshemi Rafsanjani, the old clerical autocrat and a former president, and unknown hardliner Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Some of the civil society activists joined a, span, uh, joined a, a spontaneous campaign in support of Rafsanjani, but it was too late. Whether or not there was behind-the-scene manipulation of the ballot, as seems likely, in the hindsight, Ahmadinejad's popular appeal with his promises to introduce social justice, combat uh, corruption, and dole out oil money to the people made the result inevitable. The choice between Ahmadinejad and uh, uh, Rafsanjani was clear-cut. Besides, and I think this is also important, the 
uh, theocratic and illiberal forces that were uh, promoting um, Ahmadinejad had the balance already tipped in their favor by external politics. President Bush's inclusion of Iran in the axis of evil in 2002, just after Iran had helped the U.S. to dislodge the Taliban in Afghanistan, the invasion of occupation in Iraq in 2003, and the subsequent U.S. government rhetoric of regime change and refusal to talk to Iran about nuclear and the other issues. All these really enforce the hands of the hardliners in the domestic politics. During his first presidential term, to nobody's surprise, Ahmadinejad steadily undid the few reforms that Khatami's government had managed to introduce. The country and its economy increasingly came under the control of the Revolutionary Guard, from which the president and many of his ministers had emerged. It was the 2009 election campaign, with Ahmadinejad standing for a second term that exposed and uh, energized the links between rights and honor, between hap and namus. In Iran, as in many neighboring countries, sexual honor is a core value, so deeply ingrained in the dominant culture that it is rarely questioned or even discussed, except when it is attacked or infringed. It's like air we breathe. You know, once you have difficulty with it, you know that it is there. But otherwise, you know, we have internalized it. Girls are brought up to understand that their honor resides in their bodies. Boys are raised with uh, one of their prime duties being to protect the honor of their close female relatives, especially their sisters. These practices mean that a woman's sexual morality is always the concern of some man, her father, brother, husband, son. Before the 1979 revolution, these notions were strong throughout Iran. But the spread of the education and liberal ideas had weakened them in certain sectors of society, mainly among the educated middle class in the larger cities and particularly in the affluent North Tehran. Notions of women's rights to control their own bodies were germinating. And certain liberal laws were passed that improved uh, the gender imbalance. The, 19, uh, the 1967 Family Protection Law restricted polygamy and gave women more and less the same rights as men to divorce and child custody. After the revolution, one of the first acts of the Revolutionary Council was to dismantle the Family Protection Law. The victorious Islamist brothers took upon themselves the duty of protecting. In other words, controlling the namus of all their sisters. Honor became collective, and the state took charge of it. The authority of the regime, in fact, came to hinge on its success in policing sexual morality. Women's rights were only those granted them by the ruling Muslim jurists, by Fogaha and relations between the sexes in private as well as in public were strictly confined to the red line set by old jurisprudential texts. 
An official gender policy and culture were instituted, epitomized by compulsory head covering for women and promoted by what the authorities called the culture of hijab, which was more than covering. It was really a code of uh, life. The Islamic government instituted gender segregation in politics, in public space, criminal, uh, criminalized sexual contact outside marriage, and reduced women to sexual objects, depriving them of many legal rights they had acquired before. This effort to turn back the clock was frustrated by the fact that after the revolution, women retained the right to vote and participated at a much higher rate in education and public life. Not surprisingly, perhaps over the decades since the revolution, the state's assumption of the role of the protector of women's honor has led many men and women, particularly the young, to challenge the rhetoric and values of honor as a way of challenging the state's denial of their individual rights. Iranians of both genders, all classes, and all parts of the country were rejecting or at least questioning many of the um, gender rules and sexual taboos firmly enforced by the Islamic Republic since 1979. So at least hardliners appear to believe that was the case. Hence the countryside social morality plan. Tarhid Amniyati Ishtemayi was introduced by President Ahmadinejad in 2006 in an attempt to reimpose the rigid, the rigid code of dress and compartment that prevailed in the, early, uh, the earliest days of the revolution in the 1980s. Further evidence is provided further evidence of the change in the sexual morality of the society is provided by several novel elements in the 2009 election campaign and its aftermath. One novelty was the nature of women's political participation. For a long time, a division, if not an antipathy, between secular and religious women had marked the politics of gender. The distinction refers to political attitudes, not to personal piety. Religious women in the main believe that country's laws and social norms should be based upon Islam, while secular women might be anti-clerical or advocate the complete separation of mosque and state. Many women of all persuasion backed the reformist president, uh, Muhammad Khatami who was in office between 1997 and 2005, because he, he promised concrete improvements in women's life. But the divide lingered uh, nonetheless. On the eve of the 2005 election, presidential election, at the end of Khatami's second term, when secular women's groups organized a rally in front of Tehran University to ask for equality, framing their demands in the constitutional terms, 
Women from the official reformist parties did not join them. This is actually a picture from 2009 in front of Tehran University, and that is the first time since 1979 we see women coming out in public and protesting. They did not want uh, the women from the reformist uh, parties did not join. They did not want to break all ties with the establishment and to be seen as siding with newly vocal secular feminists, who for their part were keen to keep their distance from religious reformists. But four years later, in April 2009, 42 women's group and 700 individuals, including both secular feminists and religious women from the reformist parties, came together to form Women's Convergence, Hamgeroye uh, Zanon. Without supporting any individual candidate, the coalition posed pointed questions to the field. They raised two specific demands. First, the ratification of the UN Convention of the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, women that is CEDAW, and the second, the revision of Articles 19, 20, 21, and 115 of the Constitution that enshrine gender discrimination. Using the press and new me media, they put the candidates on the spot. Women's demands for legal equality became a central issue in the campaign season. They did not support any candidate, but confronted them with the demands, uh, their demands. Rakhshan Bani Etemad, the distinguished filmmaker, made a documentary available on the internet, which registered the voices and demands of these women and the replies of the candidates. Ahmadinejad, of course, was the only candidate who did not appear in that documentary. The second novelty in the campaigns of 2009 was the appearance of Zahra Rahnabad uh, at the site of, um, uh, and, uh, at the site of, and even holding hands with her husband. Mir, and, uh, her husband, the candidate Mir Hossein Musavi. I forgot to show this, yes. These are the, some of the pictures from the 2009 campaign. Though many women politi uh, politicians have served in the Islamic Republic's uh, legislature, they had been absent from the high-level politics, and the 2009 campaign was the first time that a woman appeared as an equal partner, an intellectual match for her man. Rahnavar, in fact, was the more charismatic and articulate of the couple. Her open support for women's rights and human rights changed the tone of the campaign. She was also blunt in many of her remarks, which inspired the youth of the country. For instance, in Musavi's second campaign film, Rahnavard is shown in a conversation with the renowned actress Fatemeh Mohamed Arya. At one point, she complains that in Iran today, women does not even own her own body. If you go to the hospital for an operation, you need the permission of a man. The third novelty was the election aftermath. 
The availability on the Internet of letters of male political prisoners, key reformist figures, and people active in Musavi's campaign from their wives. What makes this often very affecting letters especially significant is that many of the writers are women from religious background who have no qualms about speaking of their physical longing for their men and question the very justice of the system that has imprisoned them. You know, many of these women, probably never in front of their children, told their husband, I love you, but now they're opening it openly saying it in this letter which is available on the internet. And in doing so, they are breaking another taboo, according to which expressions of sexual desire and love should be confined to the private sphere. So the politics of regime have generated another paradox. Having politicized the sexuality and honor of all Iranian women, previously a private matter for the family and the local community, the regime now finds itself, its own adherents taking this policy to an uncomfortable extreme by making the personal political in the true feminist fashion. The fourth and perhaps the most important novelty was the was uh, that the regime was, quote, breaking its own taboo with the revelations of uh, the extensive sexual abuse and rape of detainees of both sexes. Those who demanded political rights, the government seemed to be saying, have no sexual honor. The imagination of the world was caught by the uh, on camera death of Neda Agha Sultan, the, 25, uh, the 26 years old philosophy student shot during the protests on 20, uh, June 2009. But in my view, a more significant martyr was Tarane Musavi, a young girl who was detained, reportedly raped, murdered, and her body burned and thrown out in uh, uh, deserts. The, these atrocities and the allegations of more, um, of more horrified the public and many leading uh, clerics. The, the role played by defeated reformist candidate Mehdi Karoubi in the disclosure of these sexual abuses, his support of the victims and the authorities' refusal to allow proper investigation added further to the rumors and led gradually to other victims breaking their silence. One of the Karubi's witnesses, a male rape victim, refers to his decision to disclose what happened to him as committing a social suicide, which speaks of the power of the taboo. But then, once the taboo is broken, it loses its power. In December 2009, Britain's Channel 4 TV broadcast, broadcast an interview with the refugee member of the Basij, the paramilitary force charged with carrying out the arbitrary detention and abuse of protesters. He movingly details his horror at what occurred. He says, I quote, I have lost my word while choking and uh, holding back tears. He says, I have lost my religion. The clip uh, rapidly spread through Iranian cyberspace. 
These revelations discredited the culture of hijab that the regime had advocated for 30 years in the name of Islam and of protecting women and keeping society safe. To those who demand political rights, the Islamic Republic was saying, you have no namus. There is your right, uh, uh, your sexual honor cannot be protected. Or choose between the right to vote or sexual protection, the dichotomy between haq and rights. Interestingly, Mohsen Rezaei, former head of the Revolutionary Guard and a candidate in the 2009 election, said during the campaign that he would defend people's vote like his namus, because there were so many rumors that their votes are not going to be honored. This slogan came to haunt him after the election. His website, Tognog, was full of comments by those who called him Binamus. <laughs> when he failed to join Musavi and Karobi in denouncing the results. The fate of Majid Tabakoli, the student leader, is even more telling of the radical shift in Iranian political culture and gender politics. gender politics. He was arrested after a fiery speech denouncing dictatorship during the demonstrations on the National Students' Day, 8th of December 2009. Following his arrest, pro-government agency, uh, news agencies, especially Farce, claimed Tawakuli had been, quote, trying to escape dress as a woman and they published a series of photographs showing him wearing a headscarf and a chador. Attempts, attempts to f um, uh, at flight in such gender bending disguises are a classic troop in Iranian political history. The best known instance in the Islamic Republic was when the pr first president, Abul Hassan Bani Saad, after his uh, the, uh, dismissal in 1981, allegedly fled the country in women's dress. And now the Farce News Agency put a uh, photo of Bani Saad in a scarf next to uh, Tawakuli. But uh, pro-government media outlets chose to ignore the fact that in pre-revolutionary Iran, the clerics, such as Ayatollah Bayat, are said to have evaded the Shah's authorities by concealing themselves beneath chador. To be nubbed in this act is portrayed by the state as doubly shame, shameful. A prisoner so afraid of punishment that he literally denies his manhood. In this case, the shame was pictured not only draped over Karakoli's head and shoulders, but also etched on his face, unshaven, his eyes downcast. The exposure of Majid Tawakoli's cowardice was intended to humiliate a hero of the student movement, but it backfired. When an Iranian photographer invited men to post pictures of themselves wearing hijab on Facebook, men responded en masse, inside and outside Iran, saying we are all Majid. The campaign in support of Tawakoli's 
Tawakuli became an occasion for both solidarity and spirited debate among different elements in the Iranian opposition, as well as for condemnation of the state-imposed hijab and gender discrimination. And, then, and the celebration of women's equality and their involvement in the Green Movement. Majid Tawakuli was multiplied, the poster says, not humiliated. The students issued a statement referring, referring to Tawakuli as the honor of, of students' movement, though the word honor here is iftikhar, not namus, which is neither gendered or uh, sexual. They stress that what matters is resistance to injustice and the struggle for freedom in Iran, a struggle that will undoubtedly continue whether in male or female closing. The Green Movement moved behind beyond the stage of where is my vote to tackle a range of issues that animate the population, not just the restive middle class urban youth, but many strata of society. The government, supported by the Supreme Leader Khamenei, continued with a massive and brutal crackdown. Almost all reformist personalities, women and human rights activists, were either imprisoned or forced to leave the country or were silenced in some other way. In December 2009, after the suppression of Ashura commemoration that coincided with the seven-day memorial of Ayatollah Muntaziri, supporters of the Green Movement were forced to withdraw from the streets, and they were inactive uh, in public throughout 2010. But they came back on 14 February 2011, following the call by Musavi and Karobi for a show of solidarity with the democracy movements in Tunisia and Egypt. The Green Movement was then again forced out of public space, but its advocates remain active in cyberspace and outside Iran. Let me conclude with three observations. First, three decades of intense contestation between the theocratic and republican components of the state demystified power games that are conducted in a religious language and the instrumental use of religion to justify autocratic rule. It is this, this demystification that gave birth to the Green Movement in 2009, whose advocates are slowly but surely breaking dichotomies such as secular versus religion uh, or Islam versus human rights that infested Iranian politics in the course of 20th century. In so, doing so, they are pointing us to the main site of battle, which is that between despotism and patriarchy on the one hand, and democracy and gender equality on the other. Secondly, the massive increase in literacy and education, as well as the availability of the new media, as elsewhere in the world, has opened eyes of the people. If the 1979 revolution was the cassette revolution, new media came of age in Iran in 2009 election campaigns and aftermath. New media enabled the supporters of Musavi and Karubi to bypass the authority of the state-controlled media to influence the public agenda and debates. 
The main part of 2009 election campaign was conducted on websites and weblogs through cell phones, SMS, Facebook. The new media have created a momentum that is undermining the channels and structures on which the unelected theocratic forces have so far relied. The early revolutionaries, uh, revolutionary rhetoric, including its gender discourse, has gone hopelessly stale. It may have worked well enough in the 1980s to justify the control of women and despotism in the name of so-called Islamic values, but it no longer has popular credibility. The more the regime deploys the same old tricks, the less remains of its legitimacy. The culture of hijab and the regime's ability to manipulate the discourse of sexual honor have passed their sell-by date, uh, sell dates, and the culture of rights has taken over the popular imagination. Finally, if my analysis and hunches are right, the year 2009 may prove to have been as important as 1979. But unlike the 1979, the spirit of green movement, if we can talk of one, is feminine and feminist. And it speaks with a different voice, to use Carol Gilligan's term. It is a voice that combines the ethics of care and love with the ethics of justice and equality. And above all, it is a voice that rests on the premise of nonviolence. The present, younger, the present younger generation of Iran, Iranians know that democracy and patriarchy are incompatible. This is a lesson that some, at least the, some of the successful elements in the Arab Spring have yet to learn. Thank you. marriage is a marriage can last from few hours to 99 years. And it is a form of marriage that exists in Shia law. It was a form of marriage that existed in uh, uh, pre-Islamic time and also at the time of the Prophet, but uh, it was banned uh, and disallowed by the second uh, caliph. And at the moment, it only exists in Shia jurisprudence and has become a matter of polemics between Shia and jurists. So in Sunni jurisprudence, in Sunni law, marriage is only permanent marriage. Whereas in uh, Shia jurisprudence, in Shia fiqh, we have two marriages, permanent marriage and temporary marriage. And uh, 
sociologically speaking, it was a form of marriage that existed in Iran, and sometimes it was a form of institutionalized prostitution. And also it was a form of a marriage between a man of a higher status with a woman of a lower status. For instance, a landlord with a peasant woman, or, uh, which legitimized uh, sexual relations. And in modern Iran during the Pahlavi's era, this marriage, there was total silence in law about this form of marriage. And its registration was not allowed because only permanent marriage could be registered. And somehow it was fading away in Iranian society, but it was there as well. And it was a marriage that happened in pilgrimage uh, cities. After the revolution, uh, Islamic Republic came with this idea that any kind of sexual or even non-sexual contact between men and women is forbidden. And therefore they created a problem. And one answer to this problem was promoting sirah. Because, you know, once it becomes difficult for men and women and boys and girls to interact, and if they interact, they have to come under this uh, jurisprudential definition. So they started to revive Syria, which uh, the, main, the first main speech was in 1990 by Hashemi Rafsanjani, saying you know, the usual thing that Islam has the solution for everything, and now you know if men and women want to interact, boys and girls, there is nothing wrong to have Syria. So that, but women's movement, and especially religious women, really oppose that. Because Sire is the license to unlimited polygamy. Because, you know, once you can have as many Sire women uh, that, uh, that you have. But society also, I think, has changed. Because many women came to adopt Sire from upper classes, from middle classes, because they wanted to have a boyfriend and, you know, if they were seen or caught, it would have been completely illegal uh, and would um, be the, the crime of Zena. Therefore, they did Sire, or they pretended that they did Sire. And gradually, it changed the meaning of it. And there are really many arguments. For instance, there has been an argument. Um, uh, a difference of view between me and Shahla Hairi, because Shahla Hairi is a scholar who has worked on Sira. And she says that Sira is an arena that women can exercise their sexuality. Whereas I say, I think that it is an arena that if women exercise their sexuality, is according to the man's rule. And it is, in fact, uh, not a choice that women make. It is out of the necessity. And when I was doing field work in courts in 1980s, there were very many cases that women had contracted a sira marriage, a temporary marriage with a man, in the hope that they would transform it into uh, uh, permanent marriage. It's like a commitment, you know, men usually do not want to have commitment, and women want commitment, and, uh, uh, and therefore, you know, sira was one tool of it. So it is debated. It is a form of marriage that is recognized by Shia law, and its meaning is changing and evolving constantly in Iran. And the latest controversy about Syria is that in 2000. 
2007, the government, Ahmadinejad's government, introduced a bill called Qanun Hemayat as Khanewade, the law of protection of the family. That women rights activists call it now uh, anti-family law. And one of, there, are, there have been two articles that were very controversial, three articles. One is to put a ceiling on the amount of mehriya or marriage gift. Another one was to legalize and uh, re, uh, to create a mechanism for registration of Syria. And it has gone through many debates, and now finally uh, is that if there is a child out of Syria marriage, then the woman has the right to, clear, uh, to register the Syria marriage. But otherwise, it is like a permanent marriage. No more comments or questions? Well, I, I don't know too much about Iran, but from your presentation, it, it seems as if like, um, the revolution, you know, and there is certainly a desire for more liberalization, but it seems as if it's gone to a standstill. What do you think is the next step or the next direction that this is going to take? One million dollar question. I think the next step, you know, as I tried uh, to, I hope that, you know, the main narrative in my lecture was that uh, things have become clear-cut in Iran and transparent. And in fact, uh, the political culture, not the political structure, has changed. The political culture has become democratized. And women are, and one very important measure of democratization is involvement of women in politics and also demand for equality. And uh, Islamic Republic, from the very moment it was born, it was a very, uh, troubled marriage between democracy and theocracy, which was in, uh, defined as the struggle between the Republican side and the Islamic side, Islamic Republic. This tension unfolded and had different uh, manifestation in the past 30 years ago. At one stage in 1997, it went towards the opening when Khatami came and reformists came. But with coming of the Ahmadinejad and 2005, it went towards closure. And then the tension again manifested itself in 2009 elections. But then what happened in the 2009 election is that Islamic Republic is dead because it is neither Islamic nor Republic. And that is uh, what, you know, one of the grand ayatollahs who was the f um, uh, main brain or theoretician for this uh, uh, idea of the rule of jury said. In 2009, after the election, he said that this is not Islamic Republic. This is neither Islamic nor Republic. So, and uh, if it survives, it goes into a kind of religious dictatorship which would be very difficult to sustain, because any government, whatever, needs legitimacy. And it has lost its legitimacy. Or it would come into an opening. And it is not viable. <clears throat> but what will happen depends a lot on the global politics and uh, on the internal forces as well. Yes, please, and then you. In some, uh, some countries where there is there are a lot of people uh, who uh, worship Islam. 
there is a, a force to institute Sharia law for the people to live in this country and not in Iran, in an Islamic country. What, what is your opinion? England, for example, is uh, a lot of uh, Pakistani uh, Yes, yeah. They want to have their own yeah. You know, when we say Sharia, Sharia law, it is actually we need to understand the political context of it. Because, you know, who's Sharia? What interpretation of Sharia? And in England, it has a lot to do with the politics of minorities, with the discrimination, with the sense of identity, with the crisis of identity. And in fact, it is very interesting that in England, at least, many of those who have become Islamists and want to promote the Sharia are from Pakistan, which they don't feel that they, you know, they belong because the Islamic Republic in Pakistan failed. That was the first Islamic Republic. And also they feel a lot of discrimination in British society as Pakistani's second, third generation. And you know, when you're rejected, then you go towards ideology. And political Islam and Islamist group and Salafis and Saudi Arabia were extremely successful in really promoting this kind of reaction to Islam. So it is, I think, it is politics, it is an in industry. But if you ask my own opinion, uh, I think, you know, it is an absolute failure. And it has happened wherever we had this Islamists in power, like in Iran, in uh, Sudan, you know, they have secularized the population. <laughs> and uh, they are there by brute force. Yes, please, you and them. I have two questions. One is, the, you said the topic of your uh, discussion is sort of the conjunction of sex, politics, and democracy. And for some reason, you began in 1905. Why not begin with Barack Obama, who embodies feminism, who embodies the fight for uh, women's rights, regardless of religion? Why? Second, you say that uh, the discourse in democracy has infested, the discourse of secularism has infested the fight for democracy. You say the correct word is to talk about patriarchy, Despotism, freedom of gender, and equality. All of these are secular concepts. There isn't a single religious concept in it. So where is the infestation? Okay. First of all, for Atar A, there was a lot of religion there. She was a Baha'i. And if we look at the Baha'i movement, it started as a reform movement within Shiism, okay? And and it was a movement which really was for gender equality as well, and her unveiling and everything, and Qurat Ain herself was a religious scholar. She was the daughter of a religious scholar and the husband, uh, the wife of a religious scholar. So I wouldn't say that there was not religion there. Qurat Ain was not a secular woman. Qurat Ain was a passionately religious woman, Baha'i. And Baha'ism were Baal. Bobism. When it started as a reform movement, later on it became Baha'ism, or there were changes like this. So, first of all, I beg to disagree with you that there was religion in Qurratul Ain. And it was the religion that gave her the passion, the courage to stand against injustice. But as to the second point, I... I said religion in Qurratul Ain, I said Qurratul Ain 
No, Horatun Ain never, there was no such a thing as woman equality. Horatun Ain fought for uh, the new religion, and the new religion had the promise of that. The new religion had the promise of yes. equality, gender equality. And I had the promise of the... Uh, I'm not a member of that new religion. No, the new religion... <laughs> I had the promise of gender equality, and she stood up for her rights, she took up the veil, and she defended, and she said, those who advocate the veil are anti-woman. And this is a woman two years before something like this happened in the United States. Yes, I, I... For me, it is strange that we would talk about women's right in Iran, we would talk about the democratic rights in Iran, and never make mention of this remarkable woman. And then talk about the fight for democracy through Islam, where everything that Islam has done in the last 100 years in Iran, with minor exceptions, has been to deny women their rights. Yeah, we, we disagree on this. But uh, the whole point that I wanted to make, which I stand by it, is that the real battle is not between Islam, whatever you want to define it, and secularism, no. Secularism itself might not be democratic. Take, take one example, you know, the secular regime of uh, Soviet Union was not democratic. Fascism was secular. So secularism can be democratic, can be non-democratic. Islam or religion can be democratic or non-democratic. What the real battle I see it, and we might disagree with this, it's between patriarchy and gender equality. But you can have patriarchy in the name of religion, you can have patriarchy in the name of secularism. And it masks the whole thing. And what is, I think, what is so refreshing about the Green Movement in Iran, which is a civil rights movement, is that it has gone beyond this dichotomies. <coughs> And it has really, uh, is showing us where the real battle side is. And the battle side is between democracy and, the, you know, the alliance between despotism and patriarchy and uh, against democracy and uh, gender equality. And I don't think, you know, religion, I don't see religion only in matter of faiths. I see religion also as a way of institutionalizing the society, as politics. There is no way that you can, I, I can, or anybody can separate religion from politics. But religion must be separated from the government, from the power, from the institutions. And that is uh, so clear. But, but in Iran, because of the history, because of the uh, tension, you know, somehow, you know, we were blindfolded. Uh, I think we didn't see where the real battle is. And how can you explain that in 1979, a large majority of people want to uh, go for uh, Islamic Republic? You, you cannot say that people were fooled. Even if they were fooled, you know, you, you need an excellent politician to fool. Uh, 30 million people. Why? There were social forces behind it. Why? Because, you know, Pahlavi's regime silenced all the voices. And the only voice that remained was the voice of religion and mass because they didn't take it seriously. But the political tension, the resistance was there and it found an outlet to come out and it came through, uh, through religion. And now what I'm saying is that 
that religion, by becoming out, has actually showed itself and has really changed people. And you know, people no longer can be fooled by a religious person or by a secular person. And that is uh, where the hope lies. And of course, of course, you know, things have changed. Our problem is Iran is the absence of tolerance and democracy. It is not the problem of secularism and, uh, and religion. You know, a large majority of people are believers and they want their belief to be uh, reflected in the society, in the politics, in the policy. Of course, secularism has nothing to do with private faith. American no, there are different, different, uh, different, uh, different. Uh, I think definition of secularism, you know, and many Iranians understand secularism as anti-religion, whereas secularism is not anti-religion. It means a space. of religion who have convinced the people that to secularize a society is to make them a religious. Uh, not the forces, the interplay. No, the forces yeah. that in, in, in this country as well as in Iran, the forces that have most systematically articulated that if you secularize society, you will lose your religion, are religious forces who lie to the teeth. America uh, is the best example of a society that is secular and profoundly religious. Absolutely, absolutely. But this is something that people themselves might experience, must experience. When we look at the history or the way that uh, democracy in England or in the West went. It was through centuries of the fight between the church and uh, the civil society. And it was through these fights, through these struggles, that people changed. And we cannot, you know, democracy or secularism is not something that you can inject it into people. They, you know, these are the things that people and societies need to learn through experience. And there is one thing in life that you learn your lesson through pain. And for every lesson you learn, you must pay a price. Or at least our generation in Iran paid the price. Yes, please. Uh, perhaps you saw Ahmadinejad interviewed in the article No. Wow. Ah, so in response a question about the oppression of women mm. He said, of course, that his government has no authority over the judicial system. And uh, we've heard in other lectures in this series that the judicial system and all civil institutions in Iran are, in effect, controlled by one man, the Ayatollah Khamenei, and his council. And so, this represents to me the absolute opposite of secularism. In a country where the judiciary once was secular, there were secular laws. Now they have become dominated by a theocracy, a clergy. So if you want to educate Iranians about secularism, why present it, as Dr. Milani has said, in a way that presents a contradiction to religion, because that's how it's established now. The judiciary is controlled by a theocracy. So how can you change that except by secularism? Okay. Uh, something uh, I think Dr. Milani 
perhaps forgot to introduce me, uh, mention when introducing me, is I am an anthropologist. I'm not a political scientist, okay? So my angle, the way that I look at things is from an anthropological. No, I just... <laughs> yeah, so, so I am an anthropologist. And as an anthropologist, you know, you learn from the way that you are trained to see things through the eyes of the people. Not, you know, and also anthropology um, teaches you two things, I think. That you have, that you need to suspend judgment, okay? You might disagree entirely with the people that you are living and trying to understand and write about. You might, you know, it goes against your own notions of uh, justice, value, and everything. But you must suspend judgment in order to understand how they see it and why they do it. And it comes from a very deep respect that people who they are, they have reasons for doing this thing. And if we were in their situation, we might have done. So that is one thing. And the second thing anthropology teaches you is that it actually makes the strange. In the other society, familiar, and the familiar in your own society is strange. So somehow by studying your, uh, the society, you come to uh, see the uh, patterns. What I was trying to do in this lecture was not giving a solution, but giving an analysis. And the whole point that I'm making is the tension between religiosity and secularism. And this tension between religiosity and secularism have been there in the course of 20th century. And I see modern Iran starting with uh, constitutional revolution. So the tension was there. And in the first revolution, the constitutionalists, the secular camp won. OK? But they did not deliver the democracy. And that is why Pahlavi regime came. There were unrest, and the tensions were not resolved. And the Pahlavi regime came by westernization, secularization, modernization, somehow suppressed the debate. And then the Islamic Republic came. They also suppressed the debate by Islamization. And the control of the judiciary is the most important thing, you know. The most important, the demand in um, 1906 uh, Constitutional Revolution is Adalat Khane, the House of Justice which was created, and in fact it was created by um, Reza Shah. Secularized the, law, uh, the laws, but the judiciary never remained independent. You know, one element of democracy is an independent judiciary, which is not under the control of the ruler. So we cannot say that the laws were better in, uh, during the time of the Shah, but it was not an independent judiciary. After the revolution, they became Islamized. And now it has really lost its total independence. So it, it is now a theocratic uh, state. And the point that I'm, I was making is that Islamic Republic, when the revolution happened, was unknown. It could have gone into another direction. But now it went into this direction. And after 2009, it is clear cut. The marriage between Islam Jumhuriyat and Islamiyat, that is between the Republican and Islamic side, is over. 
And you know, I, we have in the um, conclusion of our book in nine, 2006 that uh, we finished it when uh, just the year that Ahmadinejad, in fact, just the month that Ahmadinejad was elected. And we said we don't know in what direction it might go. But now it is over. So Islamic Republic as it was, it's gone. It, it remains to see what evolves out of it. And I hope something better. Could you speak up, please? Yeah, my question is uh, about what you said, um, I guess, two questions before this about um, people have to experience themselves, uh, whether they can have a secular term or not. So, um, as an anthropologist, uh, you Iranian uh, population, especially the youth, which I think uh, you mentioned it's over 22 million people. If they were given the choice to have a secular, um, like whether or choosing democracy within a choice of religion, which one do you think they would choose? Yeah, the, in Iran now the debate is divided. I think not only the youth, you even give the religious people, many of the clerics in home, do you want an Islamic Republic? Do you want an Islamic regime? Majority of Islam, Islam, I'm not referring no. to Islam or non-Islam. Any religion, democracy within a title of, you know, democracy with a religion or democracy or secular state. Do you, you know, you know I, I have problem with you framing the question. <laughs> because, you know, secular, what defines secularism is religion. Secular and religion constitute each other. It is in the politics of it. What is important when you ask people, they might not articulate it that way, but what is clear, they want democracy. And this democracy, for the time being, can be only uh, expressed or manifested through what we know and what we define as secularism. So uh, it's not a question that you ask. If you have a free election in Iran, Tomorrow, and also you have uh, in the 2009 showed very clear that people would go against the theocratic system because it has shown itself that it has not delivered. So people would go for that. So my point is not that mm, what I'm trying to say that it's the easy way to see the problem as the fight and battle between Islam and secularism. I'm saying no. It is the fight and battle between democratic forces and despotic forces. And you cannot be democratic without being egalitarian, without believing in uh, freedom of women. That is what I am saying. And I'm saying that that was not clear-cut in the beginning of the 20th century. Reza Shah was secular, but was not for women's rights. Therefore, and, and, uh, Khomeini was religious, but certain things that he did actually promoted women. Like, uh, you know, in 1967, when the family protection law is passed, and before that, in 1962, when there is a white revolution and women are granted the vote, one of the speeches that Ayatollah Khomeini makes, and one of his main reasons for being opposed uh, to Shah was that women should not vote. Okay? 
it is against women's will. After 1979, he comes and becomes the leader of the revolution. He says, no, women have the right to vote. And the argument is that at that time, women's vote fortified uh, the Spotted regime of Pahlavi. But now women's vote is fortifying the Islamic regime. So what I'm trying to say, it is religious arguments can come, but there is always something else behind it. And I'm trying to understand what is behind it. Because if you don't understand it, you can influence it. You can change it. And I'm now speaking as an activist as well. And without under, if we are opposing Islamic Republic or religious government, we must understand why and how it came and what are the logic. And I tried in my lecture to give my own analysis. Um, I'm in the comparative literature department, so we're helping ourselves um, political scientists and anthropologists and comparativists. So I will, in a short comment, try and bring comparative and common ground between yourself and Professor Milani. Thank you for rescuing. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you, that, and I'm, I'm sure Dr. Milani didn't mean this in the way that it made it sound good. I agree with you that Tlaherere wouldn't necessarily uh, conceptualize the idea of the quality of men and women in the way that these women do in 2009. Of course, that would be an impossibility. At the same time, um, and I'm sure you didn't mean for it to say like this, sound like this, I'm sure you would agree that it would be incorrect to categorize someone as religious in 1848 when she unveiled, because the whole society is religious. There is no non-religious person you know, in the context of your Everyone is religious, and you are defined by your religion. There's no other definition of so both of these, you know, there's a bit of problem in the way in which both of you maybe presented your view there. But I think what I would encourage you to do is to look at Tahirib or Atulain, therefore not with the, through the spectrum of religion in that sense, although she was a deeply religious person. Um, and actually take you back to your argument of Hath and Namus, because what is so fascinating about her is that what she is doing is what you're kind of talking about now, not in the sense that she was saying men should be equal to women in the way it became conceptualized very early on in the later body movement. But what she is saying is women have the right to speak, and they have the right to speak in public, and they have a right alongside men. So that's very similar to your idea of how. And the way that she demonstrated that was by violating norms. That's exactly what she did. She said, you don't give me the right to uh, protect my own honor. I will violate it in front of you. And she unveiled, and she showed her face, which is all that meant, of course. And through that, what she actually did, if you, you know, study Bobby Bahá'í history, is that she created a rupture with Sharia. She created a new Sharia. She was the line that divided between an older system, as she con conceived it, of behaving, controlling women in particular, which she would have seen herself as a woman, if not in the same way that we gender now. But she was the dividing and the breaking point between these two Shariahs. So actually, she does embody. When the, I see a picture of those women, and the one in the middle, you know, saying, and they want uh, they were talking about. This is precisely what she was talking about. She just wasn't, of course, 
conceptualizing it in the way that we understand yes. feminism today. So I think both of your views can actually be married to that in a, in a, in a sense, in that what she's talking about is exactly pathognomous. Exactly. I have the right to define my norms, and in your limited understanding of it, I will violate it in front of you, and thereby create Yes, yes, thank you. I, I, I really think it is very um, insightful. I never thought about it that way, but it is exactly, it's exactly by violating it she demonstrated that. Thank you for drawing my attention to that. And that is what makes it so important. Pardon? Thank you very much for uh, your wonderful talk. Thank you. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.